This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... How Players Choose. Dagger of the Mummy's Tomb. A-A-T-I-P. And The Last Jedi. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R or leave immediately for your local game store before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the Gaming Hut. But what if the players chose Chex Mix instead of Doritos? And what if they chose to use dice instead of miniatures? And what if, pause for breath, they chose Abba Gold instead of Peter Frampton coming alive as the double album GM screen. What madness! It's player choice, Robin, and it's right. what wrecks and makes wonderful everything we do. Exactly. How do we know uh, what players will pick? How do we know what they like, Robin? What what do players want, to paraphrase Freud? Yes, well, of course, everybody's particular mix of players uh, is a little different. But I've had a lot of players over the years. And uh, I bet you he have said, to... leaning back on the front porch, yeah, exactly. pouring bourbon into his iced tea, getting ready to talk something. Yeah, I, I remember when you had to walk twenty miles through the snow for a polyhedral. It wasn't even balanced. Um, one thing that I've noticed over the years, and I'm continuing to notice, is that, uh, and it does vary with the dynamics of your player group. That players, uh, we want to give an infinite variety of choice before the players, but like a magician, you as GM can perhaps. Sometimes force the issue if you ever want to, not necessarily, you don't necessarily want to all the time, but sometimes. My pearls, he said, clutching them. You might be a little, <laughs> a little forewarned about what they're likely or not likely to choose to do. So, uh, I thought we would look at different sorts of choices and how, uh, you can expect, uh, players to react in, in one way or the other. And some choices, as in real life, are more, uh, difficult than another. Um, and for example, uh, let's start off with one choice is just sort of paralyzing, and that is the uh, choice between multiple options in which none of them seem distinctively better or worse. 
right? So this is like your your roommate holds up two sweaters, uh, both of which look perfectly fine, and says, "Which sweater should I wear?" And <laughs> or your or a, your or your wife throws you a whole knitting catalog and says, "Which sweater should I make?" Right there we go, <laughs> and that is a difficult choice to make because it seems arbitrary. So uh, when you are presenting choices to the uh, uh, players, uh, think about uh, which one you might make more interest in the other. So uh, they're not picking a sweater, but maybe they're deciding who to go to talk to next, or they're uh, deciding, you know, which cult to align themselves uh, uh, with, or, uh, you know, which of a couple of different possible safe houses to investigate. And if you just sort of lay them all out neutrally, that is going to force your players to, you know, they don't have enough to go on. So make sure that they've got enough to go on. And if you care which one they pick, of course, make the one of them uh, slightly more interesting and appealing to them in some way. Uh, <laughs> and how you do that, of course, is, uh, you know, presumably by now, if you're playing with people you're familiar with, which things they like to go and explore, which buttons they like to press. So uh, give them a button that uh, presses uh, uh, whatever uh, desires they have. And then, you know, they can always surprise you. They can always go for the thing that you just sort of... Uh, didn't describe as particularly interesting, but chances are they're going to go with what in uh, sleight of hand terms is called a force, where the uh, magician subtly pokes one of the cards uh, into the hand of the person picking the allegedly uh, random card. Ken, what do you do when you want, if not force a choice on a, a players to sort of have an idea which one they'll probably want to pick? Well, in many cases, if if I want the players to go to a place... Um, or a, to follow a certain route, I identify a thing that the players, I know that they already want to do in-game. Uh, if it's the beginning of the game, that's a little harder. But if we're in the mid-game and the players have sort of got agendas, you just move the thing that you want them to do most in front of the majority of their goals. So it's like, oh, um, yeah, I, I know that you'd like to uh, make a, a magical cloak, but sadly, all the magical cloth is in the hands of the Thieves Guild. And, oh, I know that you'd um, like to uh, get to uh, to be certified an assassin, but the certifying seal is in the Thieves Guild. And I know you'd like to win the love of the fair Marguerite, but she's dating the vice chief of the Thieves Guild. And so all of those things, you sort of say, well, look, if you take on the Thieves Guild, like this adventure says you might want to, um, look at all the wonderful personal solutions you can get to by going through there. Or you can go to the, you know, cavern of inadequately um, uh, stocked treasure uh, guarded by the dragon of uh, bad attitudes. That, that would be the other choice you could do. And they usually will go towards the thing that is a specific thing that they want as opposed to going to a thing that is just sort of promising generic adventure because the player characters are in it. And the way that the players distinguish uh, any given slap fight from another one is that did their player get a thing that they, their character get a thing that they wanted. Now at the beginning of this, of the session or the beginning of the game, maybe if say you've got a time machine game and they could go literally anywhere in history, what you want to do is, and I think this is just good habit for any, for anything you present is to present the places that they might go, the top four settings on the time machine or the four doors out of the uh, TARDIS or whatever as uh, things with their own, as, as we say in retail, USPs, unique selling points. So 
if you can encapsulate something that makes it as opposed to just there is a wash of adventures, wherever you go, there will be adventure, then they won't care. But if you say, well, you can go here and there's going to be exciting sword fighting. And if you go here, there will be um, uh, galleons full of treasure. And if you go here, there will be um, uh, uh, intricate romance and uh, delicate politics. And if you go here, there will be a chance to uh, change history and fight Nazis. Then all of those are their own sort of flavor, and it's like, ah, oh, do I want to fight Nazis or do I want to uh, loot a galleon? Ah, oh, I, I kind of want to do both, but but now you've got them tasted up for the meal. It, it's like writing a menu. You present each thing on the menu in a way that will make someone salivate for it. Right. Uh, now, some of the uh, choice-making of players uh, hits the uh, point in the, in the road where the uh, desire to emulate a genre... And these types of things that players typically do collide with one another, um, <laughs> or so, go, or or perhaps go far away from each other. <laughs> right. Um, so, for example, it is a, a a trope of the investigative genres that the people that you talk to will resist you and be kind of annoying until you break them down. And there are uh, sort of two different ways where the players can kind of thwart you on that and you have to sort of be prepared to pull back or to, to do more. Uh, one of them is that sometimes the players are more risk averse uh, than uh, the players in or the, the characters in, in a mystery and therefore you have a equivalent of Hercule Perot who doesn't want to go talk to anybody mm-hmm. you know because that's a that's stressful um, he's, you know you know the witnesses are going to give you a hard time so often the players will uh, given a choice between getting information impersonally from a document and talking to someone who might give them stick, they will always go for the document first. So you can deal with that in a couple of ways, one of which is to make sure that, you know, the whole mystery is not just laid out in a series of documents, but (laughs) because you know they're going to go for the document first and you want to choose ahead of time, you know, where the ghoul ambush is going to be. Well, guess what? (laughs) There's a price for going and getting the document, which is there's a ghoul has the document currently, and he does not want you to take it from him. Or the ghoul uh, tunnels are underneath the library, and when you sneak in after hours to go to the secret document room, the ghoul's got you. Exactly so. Uh, The obverse of that, though, is that uh, sometimes uh, players who do go and talk to the people who, according to genre, are giving them stick, will then... Uh, murderize them uh, because the players are also, uh, when challenged, uh, not necessarily always uh, as invested in keeping their cool as uh, the uh, as Batman or Sherlock Holmes would be. And if their uh, sense of autonomy and power is threatened, uh, they may react in a way that uh, spins the narrative off in a strong but uninteresting direction, especially if it's the same uninteresting direction they've gone in Oh, another one. Okay, now they're on the run from the authorities, just like they were in the space opera game and before that in the cozy mystery game, which was weird because they were the authorities up until then. So uh, you may need to calibrate uh, the uh, amount of stick that the uh, witnesses give to the uh, characters, particularly uh, with the one or two players in your group who uh, doesn't necessarily uh, handle being challenged all that well. I mean, by and large, um, I think many players, uh, and, and maybe not all players, and maybe I've been blessed, uh, hashtag, um, are not quite down to murdering the candy store owner because he uh, fails to remember you know, who he saw crossing the street the other day or whatever. But they will 
tend to make the interaction unpleasant and have an unpleasant taste in their mouth because to their mind, this is a clue that they need to go through the story and they have to pay this stupid toll of this guy you can't even murder. And so rather than having a unneeded fight scene or an unneeded, you know, um, uh, uh, filing off your fingerprints and fleeing the law scene, um, you have a interpersonal scene that the players object to and regret going to. And that part of that is obviously make your NPCs uh, juicier and more interesting, even when they're giving you stick. And part of it is also, I think, to have a B plot or another area where if you go to the candy store and the candy store owner, you know, he's going to be a jerk, but you also know that you have to go to the candy store anyway to buy some candy because you have a secondary objective of uh, helping out the, the, the old lady whose watchful guardians won't let her have candy. And so you can use one encounter to feed another encounter or to feed a B plot, even that isn't necessarily part of your, uh, your mystery, but is part of your character story. I think that's another way that you can sort of provide, uh, a little carrot to go with the stick of, yes, you have to go talk to the stupid candy store owner. Yes, you hate him. No, you can't murder him because you're cops, etc. Um, although I guess in some towns, why not? But, uh, certainly in a, in the game context, no, you can't do that. Right. And another, uh, thing to make sure that you avoid doing is in, a uh, if your plot depends on the uh, characters going and interacting with something or someone, don't make that thing so threatening that it seems to them like it's the best choice to just blow it up or shoot it or kill it or ambush it. Uh, that the sources of information uh, or you know the, the sort of gateways to the next thing, you will lead your players to ignore a, a plot line if it just if you make it just too terrifying. So the trick is to if you want them to be terrified in that scene, make it seem innocuous at first uh, so that the thing that they're seeing over the ridge uh, isn't the headless children playing with the dog. Uh, it's once they get into the village, those children suddenly are headless so that they've moved in and uh, done the interaction part and perhaps even gotten the information they've seen. You know, they've seen the plaque or they've, uh, you know, noticed the time anomaly or what have you, but they've had a reason to engage in the first place so that, um, and I guess this is just sort of a variant of sometimes you get more uh, player uh, movement with uh, popsicles than you do with vinegar. Yeah. Another way that you can um, sort of uh, feed besides what does the player want in terms of their goal? Uh, what is a fun thing to do uh, for the, for the player and what are the, um, uh, just the juicy nature of, of an, of a scene or an interaction. You can also provide not even, uh, concrete rewards, but you can signal your readiness to engage when a player goes in a direction that you want. You sort of, it, this is another sort of a feedback, uh, loop, but let's say that you wanted the players to go in, into the thieves guild or into the candy store. And the player that does the going in is um, a sort of a person who likes a lot of drama. Well, you give instead of the candy store owner just sort of going through the same script of I can't tell you, I don't remember, too busy here at the candy store to talk to a bunch of a bunch of low life cops who weren't there when I got robbed, blah, blah, blah. You give 
the uh the the dramatic interaction uh type role player a, a story you say oh i and, and it's still like i can't remember but uh, and uh but it's because um i was worried about my daughter who has you know been out um uh, all night and with all these mysterious werewolf murders i was just very very concerned and so i was you know thinking about her instead and so the um player gets to do the thing that they want to do to rectify the situation and that's not a thing that you put in ahead of time but that's a way to post hoc reward the players for doing the thing that you wanted them to do is feed that player a specific kind of interaction that that player likes and if that player likes playing the hard case then you know you can sort of when he goes into the groceries i don't remember and you can't even make me talk not even if you you know start smashing up my goods like them uh, like them irish fellas did and you're like smashing up your goods hey eh? smash or irish fellas I want to fight Irish fellas. And either way, you've provided that uh, uh, sort of a brute squad player with their own kind of reward. And so it is a thing where it's not even a formalized. Um, if you go here, you will get to play a thing that you want to play. But if you are always alert to what player, what a player wants out of a scene in terms of their emotional uh, uh, palette, uh, not even what their character wants, and you provide that to reward players for going the direction you wanted them to, then they will start picking up on your subconscious cues. You won't even have to consciously force. They will be sniffing around like um, uh, uh, a puppy looking for which hand has the biscuit in it. Right. And uh, speaking of biscuits and rewards, now, Ken, you and I would know nothing about this, but uh, I have heard that sometimes uh, role-playing groups uh, are uh, include players who are intentionally oppositional and whose fun derives from... Uh, keeping the GM on her toes and uh, never doing the predictable thing. And so uh, the key there is if you need to be able to predict what's going to happen, for example, you have a game system that requires a preparation and you know, stats and battle maps and so forth, is uh, A, you can just keep things free-floating so that uh, you know whatever decision they make, eventually, maybe not this session, but the session after, they're going to... Uh, you know, go into the cobalt war and that you spend hours uh, mapping out. It's the, but you can also the Schrodinger's uh, beggar. You know, yes. whatever whatever door you left, that's the door the beggar was at. Right. Uh, but you can also uh, guide uh, players to make choices by making one choice too obviously good to be true, because uh, there's nothing that will arouse players' uh, suspicion more than a uh, opposition, a, a set of choices where one of them just seems way, way better than the other one, right? You can uh, go through the dismal swamp, or there's a freshly paved road here, and you see that the uh, the king has placed a proclamation, and he's uh, he's a sh there's a sign assuring you that the bandits have been cleared out of uh, this particular road, and that uh, all are welcome to travel the road, and that if you go down this road, unlike the dismal swamp where the ghouls are, uh, the swamp's next to the library, of course, but, but if you head down the royal road, you have no fear whatsoever of bandits, and you can uh, carry your, uh, uh, your treasure uh, down the road with, uh, with happy abandon, because uh, we assure you, and there's even a royal official there to say, uh, we would be delighted, oh, uh, obviously wealth-carrying uh, travelers, if you would head down this road, uh, because we are sure that uh, you will end up on the other side of the road. Perhaps your treasure will even multiply along the way. This road is so good. Yes. Now, and don't worry. It's under wizard eye surveillance exactly. to keep bandits away. Yes. So, so really, this is the road you want to take. Uh, and there's just a small fee, just a just an electrum coin. That's all we ask for. 
uh, because we are confident in our new Royal uh, Road Revivification uh, project. So please step this way. And uh, that, of course, is a way to get them to go to the Dismal Swamp. Right. And if they do go down the Royal Road, then you can um, uh, have them zip down the Royal Road if if, if you want, to, uh, uh, or you can have... Yes, we make them even more suspicious if they actually do have more gold at the end right. and nothing yes. happens. Yeah, that no, would... you count all your gold up and there's like 15 new gold pieces. You don't recognize the king on them, but, you know, he's probably a good king. Who can yeah, say? Yeah, everything's fine. Keep going. Don't Keep going. worry about Don't worry what about just it. happened. Yeah. Don't circle back and investigate. Yeah. Count your blessings. Mm-hmm. Move on. And nothing was in that dismal swamp anyway. The, the, the fact that it's by the library, that means nothing. That means nothing at all. Well, speaking of moving on, I think uh, we should make the choice to move on uh, through this commercial message, which is perfectly safe, guaranteed by the king, has wizard eye surveillance, and then we'll emerge on the other side with some other segment. Your gold will multiply. There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of terror town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pelgrane Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In In Cthulhu Cthulhu City. The sound of pickaxes being smacked into the hard-packed dirt. The careful whisking of dirt particles away from ancient artifacts. Oh, to heck with it. Never mind that. It's all laser scanning these days. Welcome to the Archaeology Hut, uh, one of our le- uh, less common huts here in the show. Uh, but Patreon backers... Scott well, it's buried Walker, under a lot of other huts. It, exactly. We, we, have, to we have to dig down through some other huts and dig like a, 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 a measurement trench. It, it, there's a lot of work involved in getting to the Archaeology Hut. Yes, and then we find storage room for all the other huts. Uh, but uh, Patreon backer Scott Walker... Uh, says that the a report by the Journal of Meteorics and Planetary Science, conveniently named, has come to the conclusion that one of the daggers found in Tutankhamun's tomb is made of meteoric iron. Uh, what did he need it for? Uh, Tutankhamun, of course, as we all know, uh, reigned from uh, 1332 to 1323 B.C. Give or take. Uh, <laughs> yeah, give or take. So that puts him roughly uh, from nine years old to 19 years old, where... Famously, he meets an ambiguous fate. So if we're talking about a rock falling from the sky, Ken, uh, Mm -hmm. I guess we have to start uh, talking about uh, what Tutankhamun's dad was up to. Uh, He was Akhenaten, and he uh, upset some some apple carts in uh, in ancient Egypt because he decided that, uh, you know, this uh, um, Amun-Ra guy that we've been happily worshipping all this time, well, I'm going to set him aside. He's sort of too human, too much of a 
culture hero, too much of a sort of a standard uh, pantheon patriarch. I'm going to institute the worship of the sun. We're going to worship the good old life-giving but entirely abstract and distant and sometimes too scorchingly hot Aten. We're going to move the capital. Uh, we're going to move out of Thebes and move to uh, Akhetaten. And not everybody liked that, did they, Ken? No, they did not, because um, like most people who establish a new capital in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> it was a terrible idea. And the fact that, no, no, it'll all be planned just meant it was even worse because right. it wasn't organically grown up. And Akhetaten at the time uh, was uh, not as close to the Nile as it is now. It was farther away from the Nile. It was kind of a... A, a crummy place in, so in all ways. Moved or is the ruins of Akhetaten? Well, you know, six one. Right. I think that's a that's a relativity question, Robin. The legend is that uh, the pharaoh Akhenaten found the site for Akhetaten or Akhetaten by discovering a Benben stone in the middle of the desert and saying, "Here, Aten has sent um, uh, his magic uh, rock." Uh, his magic uh, pyramidal, uh, whatever the hell, to indicate that this is where our new uh, capital should be. The, there's a famous Ben Ben stone in uh, Heliopolis, uh, which is the, the like the Ben Ben stone of Amun. So obviously the the Aten needed its own Ben Ben stone. So it's a, a great deal of um, uh, of heterodoxy and 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 ugly uh, questioning of of ancient faiths. For a while, people used to sort of say, oh, no, Akhetaten was, was great. He was like a monotheist and he was, you know, progressive and all this was neat. And the more we discover what happens when people have a cult of personality and move the capital into the middle of nowhere and no one likes them and they tear their name down at the instant they're dead, it's sort of got a North Korea vibe once you sort of start looking into good old Akhetaten. So um, uh, all manner of trouble going on. Plus, he had an alien head. I don't know if people know that. You look at his statues, and he has a great big, long, gray alien head. Uh, and he made them carve that. That was not like people doing it after he was dead. They did that on purpose. Right. Uh, so let's say, uh, hypothetically, your dad's an alien. Yeah. And uh, Or has or has been uh, subsumed by alien DNA that he got from touching a, mis- a mysterious rock that fell in the middle of the desert. Six of one. Six mm-hmm. of one. He, he is either uh, born an alien or becomes an alien at some point, and he says, let's... Let's worship the sky disc and uh, the saucer that flies in the sky. Hello, exactly. Yes. What what befell uh, uh, Akhenaten? Do you recall? Um, well, I, I think he just died of um, uh, Marfan syndrome. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, if you're a member of the uh, Egyptian royal family at this point, you are your own grandpa. Yeah. Uh, the question is not uh, whether you were killed by uh, a disease of inbreeding, but exactly what kind of inbreeding killed you in what manner. Um, and this is probably also. Uh, true of of young Tut himself. Yes, who was who had who had um uh, like eight million. Every time they go in with a new medical technology to look at his mummy, they find more stuff wrong with him. <laughs> About uh, ten years ago, they said, "Oh, he was just run over by a chariot," and that explains all of his problems. And then they came in with new imaging, and they said, "Nope, I don't think he would have been run over by a chariot. I think all of these things that look like being run over by a chariot are either things that were already wrong with him or were post mortem damage uh, to his body in because they were." Very very hastily jamming it into his sarcophagus to get him away from everybody. And also apparently the new thing, and they're going to disprove this in 10 years. So, you know, don't um, uh, uh, buy stock in it. But the new theory is that after he was buried, he spontaneously combusted. 
that uh, that Tutankhamun was uh, uh, badly mummified and the chemicals uh, mixed badly and he burned inside his sarcophagus. Now, the so other possibility is... to say that he did not have the panoply of uh, congenital defects that uh, was previously assumed? It was just all due to... Uh, a mummy warpage after the fact, or um, he, that he, he still has a bunch of, of of problems going on. But the but the um, the the specifically the broken bones and things that people thought were the res- re- result of the chariot accident are either post mortem or are just his body was screwed up to begin with. So right. the congenital defects may have may have incurred because he did actually suffer a very bad um, uh, break, broken leg at some point before he died. Um, and whether or not the broken leg is what killed him and he just bled out because he was hemophiliac or something or he had a horrible broken leg and that put enough stress on his body that all of his other genetic, you know, uh, illnesses, uh, killed him. Or he also apparently has a bunch of malaria in him. And so he might have just died of malaria because apparently malaria will mess you up. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> don't get malaria, kids. Yes. Uh, so, uh, that answers the question then. They, the, the fam at this point is, uh, genetically messed up. Uh, and so therefore, uh, Akhenaten at some point goes off in the desert, finds the artifact with the alien DNA, and, uh, He's uh, well can't can't go any worse, so he uh, accepts the alien DNA and uh, perhaps other than the giant round head, uh, he may be a little healthier than his uh, than his kid winds up being. But eventually he he passes uh, beyond the mortal coil, and who knows whether he uh, goes off into the western lands as a regular old pharaoh uh, would have done if he was uh, uh, paying obeisance to uh, Amun Ra, or perhaps he gets. Picked up in the uh, alien saucer and, and carried off into the sun. But now, here's uh, good old uh, Tut, a uh, young Tut, and he's got a couple of advisors, uh, Horam Heb and I. Uh, they're uh, his advisors, and uh, they become his successors. Uh, and so, it's, it's, there's another reason, other than being uh, born wrong, uh, that, that puts Tut in danger. And so they... Uh, reverse the whole uh, uh, Aten thing. So we're going back to Amun-Ra. We're uh, packing up stakes here in Akhetaten, heading back to Thebes. But once you do that, uh, dear departed dad, uh, maybe he's just up in his spaceship, and uh, you want to be able to defend yourself against him. And you even want to be able to defend yourself against the the sun people, the aliens, uh, when you go to the Western lands. Because, of course, if you have a dagger in your tomb, that's not for you to wield in this uh, temporary temporal life. That's for you to, you know, get into knife fights uh, in the afterlife. So presumably, uh, the reason that he has a, a dagger made of meteoric iron is that he knows that that's the dagger he's going to need uh, when he uh, faces either his alien dad or uh, his alien dad's alien pals uh, once he gets to the Western lands, because they may have been driven out of uh, this ordinary Earth with with its uh, river and uh, your uh, vulnerability to birth defects, but on the other side, in the perfect lands, that may have been their original goal, right? They they don't want to take over the, the mere ordinary mortal world. They want to take over the Western lands. So the answer, uh, in my mind, of why he has a meteoric dagger is uh, to uh, fight his alien dad in the Western lands. That's one strong possibility. I should point out that recently, a scientist named Albert Jambon uh, has demonstrated that a lot 
of the iron artifacts from the Bronze Edge uh, are meteoric iron. It's not just Tut's dagger. It's also, he had a bracelet and a headrest that were made of meteoric iron, plus some artifacts from the Shang Dynasty, an axe from Ugarit, a dagger from Alacha Hoyuk, which is from like uh, a thousand years before uh, Tut, or even uh, 1200 years before Tut, and iron beads from uh, pre-dynastic Egypt, so that the uh, people of the ancient world are woke to the problem of dream aliens messing with things. Now, the question that I would ask is, why would star iron, would meteoric iron, be especially good at fighting aliens? Is it a kryptonite thing, where... Because Superman is from Krypton, only things from Krypton can hurt him. Aliens are f- from space, so only things from space can hurt them. Because alternately, you could uh, figure it that meteoric iron is what kills fairies. Fairies, of course, famously don't like iron. But maybe that goes back to when the only iron around was meteoric iron. And what fairies didn't like being uh, born of the Earth is things not from the Earth. Uh, that That's what can kill them. So I think we have to keep a... A watching brief, if you will, a tiger team on the possibility that Akhenaten, Akhenaten, was a fairy, was uh, an elf, basically. And again, that would explain long head, big ears, long uh, fingers, long uh, limbs. And uh, it would not explain him not living for hundreds of years, but it would explain him writing songs, which uh, we know that Akhenaten did. Um, and it would explain uh, possibly his uh, contempt for human religion. So that's another possibility. We have to keep that out there as um, uh, as another option, I think. Right, because uh, under this theory, the uh, the uh, elves are uh, all about growth and, and nature, and uh, uh, the uh, making uh, uh, plants uh, uh, happen. And maybe they're not so much about agriculture, but an Egyptian elf is going to go. Well, you know, all this stuff I've learned about making the rainforest uh, grow, I can apply this to uh, the uh, crops on the banks of the Nile. And maybe that's why they can put Akhetaten out in the middle of the of nowhere, because with elf magic, you can make plants grow there and you don't need the Nile so much. Uh, right. And so uh, it might be that they, the elves in this uh, model would be uh, sun worshippers. And uh, uh, again, uh, you are trying to uh, uh, fight the elves uh, when you get to the Western land. So it may, in fact, in this scenario, you may not know uh, as the player characters, as you volunteer to be murdered and mummified so that you can go and reclaim the Western lands, and you know, you're all armed with an iron dagger, you may not know whether you're going to face aliens or elves. That's the big question. You just know, through some uh, divination, notoriously vague your divinations are, uh, that you're going to need this when you get to the Western lands and find out uh, who has taken it over. Because you can't really be sure that you're back conclusively to Amun-Ra and the good old uh, disordered, naturally arising uh, urban planning of Thebes, unless you can go to the Western lands and and clear out everybody on the other side. And of course, as player characters, you're not remotely afraid that just that being killed is any great uh, whoop, because, uh, you know, once you retake the Western lands, you get to live there. They're they're the Western lands. It's right there in the title, Western lands. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it says land right in the name. Right. Now, you might be concerned about your ba and your ka getting separated, uh, but that's a problem for after you fight the elves or the aliens or whoever it turns out to be. Well, keeping your ba and your ka straight is the job of whoever um, uh, writes your coffin text into your uh, into your sarcophagus or paints it on the walls of your tomb so that 
uh, when you awaken, you can read that and know the methodologies for utilizing your Ba and your Ka most effectively uh, against elves slash aliens. Right. And surely you arrange to get the best possible scribes yeah. to do this. And it's not just all a, a, a plot to uh, get you to volunteer to kill yourselves and remove yourself from the royal court so that Horemheb can take over. And if you and, it, and when you read those inscriptions, they all say, ha ha, idiot. <laughs> yeah, so because in that case, you would it would turn out that your actual mission was to come back from the Western lands and, and wreak havoc. And right. I don't know, perhaps cause your mummies to rise from their sarcophagi and start ladling out curses. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it, that, that, could be, that could be where the curse comes from. Yeah. Is that it's um uh uh you know you you go in there and it's like just in case just in case this is a trick paint yes, me a curse curses on there. are all actually aimed at poor copy editing right uh, but you know in the translation after uh you know several millennia of of uh, of slumber uh you know they're they're forgetting that they're just sort of the uh, original uh, grammar scolds and. You know, now they're just getting mad at you for messing up their team. Wouldn't that be great if death came on swift wings to people who messed up your uh, document and in- introduced copy errors? I would not want to set that precedent, Ken. All right. Just saying. <laughs> if, what if, uh, you know, Amon Ra forbid I should introduce an error into a document? Robin, that that can't be. That would be like saying that uh, the, the gods do not watch over us and there's nothing in the Western lands except wind and ghosts. Oh, well, that, that, is, that thought is so bleak. I'm going to have to seek solace in this coming uh, commercial message. I think you should. Years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come, but the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure gamebook in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Make a chronological chart of this podcast's A and B plots alongside such Patreon backers as... Raphael Pabst. Brian Thomas. Diane Donaldson. Ethan Cordray. And Garrett Fitzgerald. Oh, once again, we're, we're in a hut that I can't quite make out the details of. I'm never sure which hut this is. Oh, wait. There's the gray alien hanging out at his table, drinking a kombucha with the Nordic alien. And there I see through the window, oh, yeah, yeah, there's the, there's the comforting screech of the alien big cat out on the moor. Yes, once again, we're in that most undefined of huts, the Elliptony hut. And, uh, and this time around, kids, uh, we have a new addition to the annals 
of U.S. government interaction with UFOs. Set aside your old creaky Project Blue books that we've had to deal with in uh, Delta Green backstories for, for decades, because now we've got ATIP, uh, which, uh, depending on how you deacronymize it, and I've seen it in a couple of different versions, it's either the Advanced Aviation Threat Identification Program or the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. But what we do know, Ken, is that this is going to give you an opportunity to make fun of former Democratic Senator Harry Reid. So, well, uh, thank goodness for we that. Have, we have several payoffs yes. uh, to come here. Uh, well, so, also, there's the there's the sound of uh, uh, Scott Glancy and uh, Shane Ivey shrieking that this story <laughs> broke too late to get put into the Delta Green Handler, Scott. <laughs> yes, that was... That, that's the, re- the real conspiracy, people, is why this dropped right after uh, they went to print. Yep. <laughs> oh, so much fun. Yes, yeah, so this is indeed a big bag of Halloween candy for me, this uh, story. Um, in 2008, uh, Harry Reid, at that time Majority Leader of the United States Senate, uh, sent, as is the habit of the Majority Leader, $22 million uh, to a billionaire buddy, and specifically that Majority Leader, uh, a guy named Robert Bigelow who was a um, uh, Nevada businessman. And I am just going to stop everyone while they think about what that means. Uh, anyway. <laughs> there, there's business in Nevada. Yeah. Yeah. He Nevada gives him several businesses. He, he gets just the, just the two. He gives him uh, $22 million over five years to study unexplained aerial phenomena. Now, uh, Reed said, this is quote, I think it's one of the good things I did in my congressional service. And if you, Parsed that narrowly in that it was only $22 million, and it was on a thing that I think pretty much most Americans would say, let's look at UFOs. Why not? Um, I I guess that would be, you know, on the scale of Harry Reid things, sure. But yes, it also basically existed to enrich his crony. Uh, the, The Advanced Aviation Threat Identification program generated a report as they so often do uh, 490 pages so you can divide that out by 22 million dollars and see how much that was worth uh, the uh, program was headed by a guy named Luis Elizondo who resigned from the Defense Department in anger that after the program and Democratic control of the Senate both expired no one seemed interested in paying Luis Elizondo any more money to hunt UFOs and he went off to start his own UFO hunting company which is I guess run Run by the guy who was formerly the lead singer of Blink-182. Uh, Tom DeLonge. Tom yes. DeLonge. And so um, so now now we have a Blink-182 soundtrack. How much better could this story get? Um, so the, uh, the big sort of reveal out of it was that uh, Louis Elizondo pulled his own little Snowden and dropped the uh, visual of the 2004 USS Nimitz incident uh, in which... F-18 Super Hornets tracked a UFO that had been tracking and been being tracked by the guided missile cruiser USS Princeton. And the Super Hornets flew out there and found a USO, an under unknown, unidentified submarine object, and a UFO, an unidentified flying object, and chased them around and were led a merry chase by things that behaved like UFOs do, namely reversing on their own course, making 90-degree turns. It's all manner of wonderful things. The visuals from the uh, infrared sensors are up on the internet. Feel free to look at it. Uh, and that was the big drop that came out uh, in the New York Times and a lot of other publications that should have known better, and uh, is what uh, Louis Elizondo brought out with him. 
uh, from the A tip, or at least from one of the A tips, because I think that uh, if you've got the advanced aviation threat identification program that everyone can say, no, that shut down in 2012. I don't know what you're talking about. And secretly, the advanced aerospace threat identification program is still burbling away there in Las Vegas with all the alien bodies and the Roswell saucer engine and whatever else that now you got yourself a stew. Right, because we have enough of an itemization of the budget to know that uh, they modified buildings to contain metal alloys and... Right there, that's that's enormously suggestive because I would think that most metal alloys are containable within most buildings. You would think that, but that's because you are not a UFO specialist. Exactly. So uh, the question is, uh, what are those alloys and, and what is it about them that requires you to modify buildings in order to contain them? Uh, they uh, interviewed UFO witnesses, so that's straight out of Project Blue Book, and they did medical examinations of... Uh, UFO sighties, and for all we know, UFO contactees. Robert Bigelow uh, has always been woke. He's been UFO conscious from the jump. Uh, he studied banking and real estate, but only as a way to uh, get the knowledge base so he can build space hotels. That's his real dream. Uh, in 1995, he had founded the National Institute for Discovery Science, which uh, looked into cattle mutilations and black triangles. Black triangles were what UFOs were in the 90s. Uh, there was a brief, I guess, Coco Chanel influence period in UFOs, and they all went uh, basic black and, and sharp angles, and they gave that up and went back to normal UFO-looking things. That's weird that they sort of looked like... Uh Stealth fighters. It is odd that, uh, that, that UFOs always look like uh, um, uh, advanced aircraft that you're not supposed to know about. And uh, he's going to build himself a commercial space station, is our boy Bigelow. So uh, he is he is ready uh, uh, for, for anything, and certainly he's ready for the aliens to show up. This has been a dream of his for ever so long, and the fact that someone gave him $22 million of my money to look at it is only a tiny bit irritating. I think. I think that's your money well spent. Well, I mean, given what else Harry Reid wanted to use that money for, yes, absolutely. UFOs <laughs> all the way. And uh, uh, Bigelow, you know, uh, as a hotelier who somehow magically unloaded all of his real estate right before the Las Vegas uh, real estate crash, who can say what Bigelow is up to? Maybe the aliens told him, or maybe someone else he knew in government told him. Who can say? Now, uh, this is uh, the word threat is right in the title, and yeah. you want to identify the threat. That's how uh, you get the defense department to pay. That's how you get money pay. out of the defense uh, budget or into the defense budget, one, one, one way or the other, or possibly both. Uh, but do we know if... Uh, uh, Bigelow is a believer in the uh, in the friendly aliens who like might want to stay at his space hotel. I think, uh, the, uh, and I don't know specifically that much about Bigelow's um, uh, personal beliefs, except that you know he puts his money where his mouth is. He believes there and, has and been the government's money as well, right? And, yes, good. and that's the that's the way you stay a billionaire um, is uh, you you get the government to pay for your UFO habit. Um, he also says there have definitely been extraterrestrial visitors. So he, at the very least, knows that uh, there there's something going on. So I think... So perhaps the buildings they're modifying to contain alloys, it's like, you know, it's an alien named Al. Right. Uh, or or uh, alloys or the Eloys. Maybe it's from the future. Maybe they're time aliens. Maybe that's what it is. Th that sounds like a giveaway. Now, yeah. uh, fun haters have pointed out about the uh, Nimitz sighting that what you're looking at on that uh, black and white video is a camera 
photographing things through a glass housing so that you've got uh, not only one, but two potential sources of uh, visual artifacts. And that the uh, pilots you hear on the soundtrack uh, relating to this object as if it is a UFO doing weird things are watching it on the scope. They're not, they don't have they eye don't, eye uh, eyes on it. Right. Right. Um, and so uh, like uh, many instances, the fun haters say about objects that behave uh, in a way that seems to violate physics, that perhaps they're actually perfectly obeying the physics of optics and uh, optical artifacts. But, you know, they're fun haters. Yeah. And as we know, just as skeptics disrupt ectoplasm, I think fun haters are people who don't uh, get to know about UFOs. Right. So the uh, conclusion for modern gaming purposes, of course, is that, as you suggest, the uh, A-tip went away, but A-tip is still in business. Right. And uh, that's where if you can uh, go there and get into the installation, therefore... Uh, you can find the alloy you need as the MacGuffin, or you can interview Al the alien or find the Eloy. Um, and uh, presumably you can also uh, follow the money uh, back home and uh, in Washington and uh, have a financial money laundering scandal uh, lead you to the existence of uh, the the new ATIP that's totally different than the previous ATIP. And you can um, uh, get uh, your funding. The the, the mysterious uh, Charlie, uh, or M, who sends you out on your missions, is Tom DeLong of Blink-182. So that, that'll be fun just by itself, I think. You know, that you're um, uh, the shadowy uh, uh, a patron giving you your assignments is a crazy guitar player <laughs> instead of, you know, a mysterious billionaire. Uh, you can also get a, your uh, assignments from the mysterious billionaire Robert Bigelow, but I think it's more fun to get it from uh, from Tom DeLong myself. Right, and therefore, um, all of your adventure titles of each scenario can be the title of uh, a Blink-182 song. Exactly. So, uh, you know, What's My Age Again is one where, you know, one of you has, uh, you know, mysteriously uh, become radically older. Uh, all the small things, you're battling aliens of a shrinking ray, uh, and, uh, and, uh, so on and so forth. I also want to point out that if you're still like, well, uh, Bigelow's a little too focused on, uh, real estate and building space hotels and Tom DeLong just cray. There is a mysterious third force in this team. Um, a guy named Christopher K. Mellon, and he is wired into the globalists. He is, and, uh, and is, is he of the Mellon? He is of the Mellons. He is from the Mellon Bank. He's a descendant of Thomas Mellon. He is, um, uh, from Yale, which is, uh, always a good sign. And he worked as if we needed more for the, uh, 1970s, uh, paranoids where we thought we left back with, um, uh, Blue Book. Uh, he worked for Senator John D. Rockefeller IV. So he has, he has several owl statues. Let's just say he's, uh, you know, he's a man who knows his way around an owl statue uh, in the nude. Uh, I think we can say that about Christopher K. Mellon. And also he's a zillionaire too, cause he's a melon. So he's got, um, uh, his own resources and his own mysterious defense connections because he was, of course, assistant secretary of defense from 1999 until 2002. Uh, so, uh, it's both Clinton's and Bush's have kept, uh, Christopher K. Mellon, uh, with his eye on the optic of America's UFO fighting power. 
So uh, Christopher Mellon, if you are uh, not into Bigelow and not into Blake 182, you've got yet another mysterious zillionaire. So I think we are well supplied with our modern day uh, mission going around. Um, now, they, they also, I think, can make kind of interesting bad guys. But I think your campaign might drift a little Coen Brothersy if you do that. If your if your foe is Tom DeLonge and uh, a weird billionaire and a normal billionaire, I think that's more like a, a, a USA Network show. Yeah, let's let's burn this UFO plan before reading. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking of uh, having your funding cut off, we don't want to have our funding cut off, so we're gonna uh, play you uh, another uh, exciting and salubrious commercial, and then we'll be back with our final segment. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and the stickiness under our feet welcome us once more into the cinema hut. And as the familiar fanfare and crawl inform us, this cinema hut is dedicated to the wars among the stars, most certainly, and most recently, The Last Jedi. So, if you have not yet seen The Last Jedi, we urge you to stop this recording now to avoid spoilers, because Robin and I... We are going to discuss things that might give stuff away because you kind of have to to talk about The Last Jedi. So, uh, this is right. your opportunity. And it's the end of January. We think you've seen the, it. The odds are, of our demo, most of you have seen it. But, you know, if, wh- right. whatever. Or are turning it off because you don't care. Perhaps, uh, yes, you, you, you don't care about The Last Jedi. Which, I don't know you if know, we should introduce that thought to people that they should stop listening when they don't care. That may no, be the, the no. end of our business model. How about, but how, about if we, how about if we just introduce that they stop listening when they don't care about The Last Jedi? There you go. And only to this segment. Yes. An important uh, caveat there. All right. And so, yes, this is also a tell uh, me more segment because uh, we both uh, gave our reviews of this in our can a robin consume media text feature and uh, several of you said argue about this at length so that's what we're here for although i'm not sure uh, how much arguing we'll be doing because although we came down with different ratings for the film i think we pretty much agree on where its strengths and uh, flaws are and the only disagreement is a secondary issue of how much weight we attach to uh, the flaws right so basically the masterpiece version of last jedi would have only had uh, Ray and uh, Kylo Ren and uh, Luke and Space Gollum and the other characters, we would have rejoined them two years later to see what they were doing because uh, uh, as in uh, Empire, which this is the this is the middle part of the trilogy and uh, 
just as empire introduces moral ambiguity and uh, structural flaws, uh, the uh, that's what happens here as well. And so can you often observe that a lot of the problem with episodic television is that the writers feel obliged to also look in on the storylines of all of the other characters who've been previously established and the uh, the B plot, uh, which is, uh, you know, all of the rebels are all in one place and being uh, pursued by the Empire. <laughs> pursued uh, so slowly by the Empire. Oh, so slowly. Yes. <laughs> And by empire, of course, we need, we mean the Neo Empire, the yes, First Order. The First Order, right. Don't add us. Yes. Do, do not add us at any point during this. Um, yeah. but yeah, no, that, we completely agree on that, that that is the, not just the A story, but the great story, the really good, everything about that, uh, Luke, Ray, Kylo story arc, that triangle, the little Yoda cameo was great. Virtually and, everything and about that. actually a puppet, not yes, a CGI. Yes, not a stupid CGI Yoda, Yoda, a great puppet Yoda. It was And saying something Yoda-y, not just yeah. blathering like a jerk like he did in the... I mean, whatever happened to Yoda uh, between the first trilogy and the, the, the real trilogy, you know, it, it, I think it was like an event, right? That he was like, he had to go to Dagobah and get his head straight. And he was like, man, I don't know what I was huffing there on Coruscant. Yeah, he, he had to get Frank Oz's arm back up. Yeah, there. I think I'm a Coruscant, not a Coruscant, if you ask yes. me. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, so yeah, all of that was terrific. And the, and the bit where Luke has, uh, sort of abandoned his responsibility because he fears what he's going to become, uh, the, the, uh, sort of the Rashom, the mini Rashomon where, uh, Luke's version and, and Kylo's version of what happened to drive Kylo finally away uh, was, was perfect and great. Uh, uh, Adam Driver is, I, I think, Every time I see him in anything, he's better and better. Uh, I, he's going to be an amazing actor uh, in another uh, 15 years, and he's already like leagues above everybody else in the movie. And so him portraying virtually the only multi-leveled character in the whole series is great and a great choice. And I love that Kylo Ren story arc, and I liked everything about him. And and the oh my god the uh, the bit where uh, Snoke gets overconfident and Kylo um, uh, chops him in half, and then they have that great set piece fight against the Praetorian Guard, whose weapons we don't know why they would be there, but you know, let's not even question that. Um, uh, it's just a magnificent bit, and the it's a perfect climax to the to the start. Even the bit at the end that I think a lot of people have been whining about because how come Luke can make a Force Ghost go across planets? It's like because he's Luke Skywalker and he's sitting in the damn, you know, heart of the Jedi Mastery Order near the Jedi Magic Tree on the Jedi Magic Rock. That's why he can do it. Shut up. He's Luke Skywalker. Yeah, and he, that's even why. In Empire, he can sense the presence of Luke and Leia across the universe. Yeah, he knows uh, yeah. when they're in trouble. And that also, of course, the that has to answer the question of why wasn't he there to save Han from being chopped in half in the first place is because he'd cut himself off from the force. And so when he asks uh, uh, Ray, when he sees the Falcon, he says, where's Han? Because he doesn't know because he's, he has to have cut himself. Everything works in that storyline and, and it's terrific. And it's what, you know, it, it, it was, it was the, it was the, the oxygen in this movie throughout and, and uh, uh, any criticism of it is wrongheaded, I would say. Right. And so the question then is, how big a problem the rest of the movie is. And, <laughs> is, and how is much what we, on earth is that anchor doing around this wonderful movie? <laughs> yeah, and, and how much we care about that. So uh, clearly here is the part of the script where, uh, just as in Empire, Luke and Leah have to go off, or sorry, uh, uh, Han and Leah have to go off and kill time uh, while the training sequence happens. And at least here there's less of a chronological intercutting issue of, 
you know, presumably there's also like several months where uh, in Empire where uh, Leah and Han are just at a space cantina listening to the latest cantina music and then they go and do all the other things. Mm-hmm. Um, here, at least, there's a bit more of a the, the time telescoping is, is not so weird once you start to think about it. But there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't actually pay off or doesn't make sense. Like uh, people really dig the Laura Dern character. But the Laura Darren character doesn't get to do anything that makes any sense. Um, yes. And the uh, the side mission where it's like, well, you got to go off and talk to this guy. Oh, no, but actually you wind up talking to this other guy who Lando Calrissians you. Uh, again, that seems like, why did they even have that element in it? Like, there's a lot of... And if the whole point of that, this is that the resistance needs to get the word out to other planets and we can just bounce individual ships away from the resistance. Why don't we do that instead of just fly to the one planet and get destroyed? Maybe there's a lot of not responding to their own premises. And I'm not a guy who is necessarily saying that when Admiral Holdo does the thing and jumps the uh, spaceship into the dreadnought, I thought that was awesome. I thought it was a terrific sequence. It was well-filmed. I liked that it was Laura Dern's character's final sort of stab at, at the world. But I do want to know why only Laura Dern has that power, why no one else has ever had that power, why no one did it to, I don't know, the Death Star, for example. That 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 would at least widen out that shaft a good le- level if you could, you know, hyper-jump an X-Wing into the top of the Death Star and take it off like a soft-boiled egg. That might be fun. And also, there was a big hugger-mugger about how can they track us through hyperspace? That's impossible. And we literally see a hyperspace tracker on the finger of Finn and Ray, Right? We know we have a hyperspace tracker that was established early. And so for it to be weird and strange, but it wasn't even like, oh, they're tracking our tracker that we're idiot enough to carry around. It's just some sort of other weird nonsense thing. I, I you know, it, even within its own logic, it didn't make any sense and it wasted everyone's valuable time. And Canto Bite, it literally, I, I think they may have traveled back to the prequels to go to Canto Bite. That was, I think, a prequel planet somehow. Have you, have you? happened to be in a room where the television was on and one of the prequels was playing like in the last few weeks by any chance no i have (laughs) not because i I think like me until that happened you may be repressing just how terrible the sequels are just how unwatchably bad they are and this is at least fun fast moving nonsense so i would i would not put them in the level of the uh the sequels and it although it's messed up to me that part of it is interesting in that it bites off more than it can chew in trying to examine and complicate the moral ethos of the Star Wars universe. So, I mean, it does reinforce the theme of failure, which is the theme of the movie. I mean, that's true, right? You can't deny that a whole side quest that goes nowhere and actually damages the resistance more doesn't fit in with Poe's idiotic plan at the beginning with Luke failing the Jedi, uh, with uh, Ray failing to turn Kylo, with everyone failing to do everything. The movie's about failure. So the fact that they go to Stupid Planet, maybe not prequel stupid, but pretty stupid, um, and do stupid things and rescue a bunch of horses, uh, I'm sorry, llamas, whatever they are, space llamas, but not the actual slaves. And the space llamas, of course, are going to get rounded back up because it's a freaking island. So where are they going to go? So, yeah, they, they fail there except to inspire one kid. Um, and by the way, they don't inspire him with their story. They inspire him with Luke's well, story. The, the, the kid, the, the kid is a synecdoche. He, he stands in yes, for all the right. other kids. Whatever. Anyway, my larger point being that 
the movie's about failure, so adding a special failure just for Finn, fine, but it's a dumb failure that wastes everyone's valuable time when we could be seeing Luke and Ray uh, uh, interact more and develop that uh, wonderful, not so much refusing the call, but refusing the training uh, bit at the end where, where Luke is, is laying out what's wrong with the Jedi and uh, Yoda is explaining, yeah, all right, you've mastered the lesson. Now go on and teach it. And, and that, you know, and, and that whole dynamic, I, I think I could have used 35 more minutes of that and 35 less minutes of screwing around on Casino Land. Right. And, and that would be the masterpiece version, as I said. And we don't have the masterpiece no, version. No, we don't. It's still uh, solid and diverting. And, uh, and I did like Benicio del Toro's character. I yeah. will say that. I thought that if they were going to meet someone on Dumbland planet, on Stupid Planet, meeting uh, Benicio del Toro, who again, I think you said, introduces sort of a different moral universe into Star Wars by saying, hey, guess what? These uh, arms dealers you hate are the people who are keeping you in X-Wings, so maybe shut your yap. Um, that was kind of an interesting choice. I I'm not sure it belongs in a Star Wars movie, or at least not an official you know, uh, Skywalker line movie. Right, because but it opens up the whole question of so what are the economics yeah. Of the resistance. Yes. And if every and rich person and... in the world is an arms dealer, that kind of implies that without this uh, war among the stars, the galaxy would be impoverished. <laughs> There'd be no rich people. There'd be no right. trade. There'd be no economics at all. And the implication in, in the first in The Force Awakens is that the First Order has just had a sudden resurgence. And all of a sudden now, the resistance has been whittled down to... Uh, you know, this tiny fringe of people. Yeah, this is, this is a real indictment of the Leia administration, frankly, because if, if, uh, when the period when she's in charge of the, the, the new republic or whatever they called it, um, was so bad that a bunch of guys showing up in cosplay uniforms from the old empire can suddenly take over every star system after only blowing up like five planets. That, that's a deeper rot, I think. There's, there's a lot more going on that, uh, I'm pretty sure no one wants us to think about. They would rather not ask that question and then to have Benicio del Toro literally show up to ask that question. It's a, it's a, it's a choice I liked, but I'm not sure it's a wise choice. Yes. It raises the moral question and then throws out the logistical question of where did they get all that money and how did they buy, build all those ships all that yeah. so quickly and, you know, how did this all happen? I guess, I guess Snoke had a big bank account. Yeah. Well, he was wearing those gold lame dresses. So, you know, he's got the sweet yeah. stuff. Well, and, 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 you know, as Space Gollum, he does have uh, points on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So that's, yeah, what he got his money right. From. That's what he got. Yep. That's what it is. Yeah. New line. New line is backing all of this. <laughs> <laughs> Explains everything. And, uh, and so this brings us to uh, what I think is that to me, the mind blowing behind the scenes fact of, uh, the way that they, uh, that, uh, Disney and Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy w uh, uh, went about this, which is they had J.J. Abrams deliver his script and his film, and, uh, and then Ryan Johnson, they just said, okay, write the next part, that there was, there was not a big story conference at the beginning between their large, giant story consultant team where they actually broke the whole trilogy. Uh, and so you do get these weird things where the trilogy is this sort of exquisite corpse now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> very much so. And uh, now J.J. Abrams will get to come back and, you know, possibly reinstitute his uh, House of Atreus theme uh, because <laughs> the bit that undercuts that is from a very unreliable narrator. Yeah. Um, and, but uh, it's one of the best things in the whole movie. If he, if he take, I mean, it'll completely be congruent with JJ Abramsing things. But if they, if they make Ray a Skywalker, I'm, I'm going to riot. 
I love the fact that Rey is, nope, she's just awesome and magic and not actually a monarch of any kind. Right, that she she can be a proper messiah because she's yeah. not tied to the uh, multi-generational uh, failure and, and betrayal yeah. of, of, the, uh, of the Skywalkers. So you can see, for example, that Johnson isn't that interested in Poe, doesn't really know what to do with him, and uh, wants to introduce a couple of new characters that I think people really love and dig, and there will be people uh, for whom... Uh, those are their Star Wars characters, and that's that's great. Um, but the fact that they're, you know, that the next writer in is able to t- junk a bunch of stuff that the previous writer uh, set up is uh, I- interesting and chaotic, and and uh, and not how you or I would treat something worth a you know uh, several billion dollars. I think. Yeah, it's uh, sort of uh, refreshingly uh, seat of the pants about that. Refreshingly insane. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, but you can't look at, uh, as a consequence, you can't look at stuff in it and go, oh, well, I know what they're setting up there because they don't know what they're setting yeah. up. And, and who knows where, uh, this other guy who got bounced, uh, Colin Trevorrow, who, who knows what he would have, uh, done with all of that stuff. But, uh, and, and, uh, it does certainly, you know, add a question of suspense is, uh, is JJ Abrams going to do what, you know, sometimes you see in a line of comic books when a, favorite re- creator returns to a line after a while and they reinstitute all the stuff that they thought was interesting and junk the uh, the previous uh, uh, guy stuff and it'll be interesting to see the uh the ryan johnson uh overseen trilogy because he's writing these characters very differently and i think this is uh you know in addition to uh you know uh disgruntled fancies uh why some people are freaked out by the portrayal for example of uh luke skywalker in this because Particularly if you're super deep in the Star Wars tank, deeper than I am, and I think probably you are. <laughs> oh yeah, and you've been following all of the expanded universe stuff and all of the novels and comic books and everything. You are accustomed now to seeing the continuing adventures of Luke Skywalker, in which he is an iconic hero with an iconic right. ethos of being the 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 white knight, the ingenue um, hero who becomes a wizard. And in this, uh, Johnson is not writing these characters as archetypes. Uh, Abrams is writing them as sort of referential archetypes that are, uh, they are not necessarily aware of their position in film history, but certainly the movie is aware of their position in film history and sort of reinforces them as archetypes and is sort of consciously creating a dialogue between the uh, adult viewer of, of these characters and the kids who went to see them originally in the 70s and is sort of you know, creating a meditation on aging. Well, here, Ryan Johnson is just writing flawed people. Yeah. And they're not archetypes at all. They're, they're transformational heroes. They're still in a procedural uh, narrative. So they uh, achieve a personal transformation by uh, meeting their uh, goal in the narrative. And that's, that's what Luke is. He's a transformational hero yet again. But you're, if you're a super Star Wars fan, you're used to him being uh, an iconic hero who, uh, continues to succeed and continues to uh, perpetuate his uh, heroism. So it's shocking and disturbing to uh, see him, you know, even falter to even need redeeming. I think mm-hmm. is what upsets people. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. Right. I mean, I grew up on Luke Skywalker, like you grew up on Luke Skywalker, but the th- great thing about the movie and the, the reason that I rate that half of the movie so highly is that Ryan Johnson lays out in a artificially constrained running time, that there is no other choice that you have to, that that has to be the logical endpoint of Luke's arc, the, the Luke's career. And in the star Wars universe, we see characters who go through arcs. I mean, Darth Vader, the original iconic bad guy 
literally goes through a character arc throughout the the real trilogy. And so to say, well, Darth Vader gets an arc, but Luke can't have an arc seems a little odd to me. So I get it, but I don't believe it. And that's one of the reasons I think that I liked that uh, Ryan Johnson approach to it. I read an interesting generational analysis of Last Jedi that said, this is the first Generation X guy to make a Star Wars movie. So of course he makes a bitter, ironic, screw you baby boomers movie, um, which, you know, I don't know. Uh, maybe my Gen Xness is, is why I liked uh, some of it so much. What did you think of the very weird in retrospect decision to leave Leia alive, because of course, sadly, we won't have Carrie Fisher to sort of finish up her uh, her character on a on a great and triumphant note. So you you think they they might have reshot to kill her off in that one? I think that they could have you know had her die in the um uh in 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 the attack instead of sort of um zoom around in space suddenly and then had a bit where it's like oh. This is the, this is the end. And maybe Luke, when he shows up, he doesn't have his, his moment with Leia, but he's, um, uh, he has a moment with, you know, Chewie or somebody. I don't know what they're going to, they obviously that's a problem that has been kicked down the road, mm-hmm. but I just think given Carrie Fisher's actual passing, that that would have just been so heartbreaking. Yeah. That it, but it would have added this metatextual, but it would have introduced in like gut. that real element of tragedy into that storyline too, which I think is, you know, is, 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 is it's a it's, it's a horrible thing to have happen, but I think it would have been a gift to that story because now whatever happens to Leia is going to be sort of badly CGI'd and embarrassing. I think they're not, or it'll happen off screen. You know, oh Leia uh, um, uh, went to the space uh, planet upstate where she runs and plays with all the porgs, and don't worry about her, she's fine. Um, whatever they do with Leia is going to seem like an anticlimax and an afterthought. Because it is, but I think that uh, probably just as people, that was just too freaking heartbreaking to ha- to think of having to go back. Yeah, to no, I'm I'm sure that certainly someone who's who's known Carrie Fisher and worked with her as closely as the Star Wars people have, you know, you wouldn't want to do that, and it would feel awful. But you know, again, just the logic of the story, I I I really think that they're bu- they're buying trouble for the for part nine. Uh, yes, the the uh, and I'm sure that if you're Ryan Johnson, it's better that. <laughs> the next guy have that problem. Yes. And, and, uh, and of the bits of the Luke story that I could have done without, I think giving Leia Han's lucky dice from his windshield is a little stupid. I mean, it, 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 it probably it's an American graffiti callback and I haven't seen American graffiti in forever, but it, but it just felt weirdly out of place in the same way that uh, Poe Dameron's uh, Saturday Night Live opening routine did where it's, you know, uh, you know, fun with answering machines instead of proper Star Wars uh, 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 plan. Um, so I, I felt that that sort of was a little bit weird and artificial, th- that that tail end. And so maybe that's that, that sort of uh, not bad taste, but waft of not rightness t- tainted my, my ending. Uh, right, because thought. Carrie Fisher supplied the, the line that actually does carry that impact, which is, Luke says, you've changed your hair. It looks nice. Mm-hmm. Right. And that yeah. was a, an improv on the set. And I guess right. they just didn't realize that they didn't then have to also do the scripted thing mm-hmm. that was supposed to carry that, that the right. sort of more offhanded human moment was better than the, well, uh, Carrie Fisher had great writing instincts as well, obviously. So, yes. And when you look at this, the, her version of the script from the original, you see that, uh, because we often credit, uh, Lee Brackett and Lawrence Kasdan with making George Lucas's writing tolerable. But you also see, <laughs> oh, wait, she, Carrie Fisher was a script doctor even then. And she's the one who rewrote that dialogue to make it uh, speakable. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and, I mean, in, in a similar way, um, uh, I think, I think Harrison Ford, you know, rewrote a lot of his own dialogue in the original movie, in the first movie. When, yes. Which with she the, wrote some of his too. Yes. Right. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm sure that Carrie Fisher also rewrote it, but, but everyone was rewriting George Lucas, I think, throughout yes. that first trilogy, which is why the dialogue is human as opposed to the prequels dialogue. Right. Uh, well, now I'm having flashbacks of that moment a couple of weeks ago when I saw a little bit of one of the prequels on TV. So, uh, before I go into a tailspin, I think it's time to, uh, close up shop on this here podcast episode. Because like sand, the prequels will get everywhere. Exactly. <laughs> Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin. Stop mummies from stabbing this podcast with their space daggers alongside such patrons as... Jeffrey Cars. JF Parody. Joshua Brumley. Michael Bowman. And Morgan Ellis. Snag Canon Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash kenrobin. New designs include... This bicycle does not make toast. And nod knowingly if you're a tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>